Pastor PJ will be picking up in the book of Daniel, starting in chapter 3, the first 18 verses. If you are able, please stand in honor of reading the Word of God. Daniel chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that certain time, Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Please join me in a word of prayer before we exposit this passage. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this moment. Thank you for this day. Thank you for everything you've set up. Lord, even, even, um, even the things that we would think are hindrances, Lord, they're from you, and we thank you for them. We thank you for your word. May we learn from this and become more like Christ because of what you have for us to learn this day. May you be glorified. In your son's name I pray. Amen. So I, um, uh, I was already actually at the beginning of the, uh, right before church, where I was talking, uh, got stopped by Joel and Stephen, and the natural desires to read the whole narrative, stopping halfway through is kind of painful. And I agree. I actually, 
at one point was thinking, can I pitch me preaching three Sundays in a row? And we would go through the whole chapter in three different layers, um, and then that's craziness, um, and um, realistically, just not, not possible. So I, I think practically what I decided to do was cut it in half. We're going to we're going to approach this through the first half. Next time, we'll look at the second half. And then for our third part of Daniel 3, we'll look at the spiritual level of what's going on. And, um, and so fiery furnace, angels, all these things. I'm sure if you've been here for our Sunday school, you have so many thoughts and, oh, connections and synapses are firing. We're probably going to not hit too much on that today, um, but we'll be able to get into it at a, at a point. So... Um, Let's see, I'm usually the last week of the month, so give me like two more months, and we'll get there. Um, we'll get to look at the connection of some of these things. Uh, but for us today, we're going to look at the first 18 verses. And I, I think they're a bit strange, to be honest. You see all these listing of instruments. You see this really repetitive things, a lot going on here. Um, and yet what I'm assuming most of you remember is kind of this story, the narrative, the story of the fiery furnace. My hope is if we approach this rightly, if we dig into this and see what's going on, that we see more than just what might be that Aesop's fable level, good moral behavior, right? There's a lot more going on here, and I think God, and through Daniel, is intending for us to take away some very specific things that are very applicable to our life today um, beyond just do you bow down and worship or do you, are you willing to die for what you believe in? Um, so I'm hoping that's what we get into today. Let's look down at Daniel 3, starting in verse 1. And um, Daniel starts this with a haymaker right off the bat. Like, to me, I immediately think of, like, Daniel coming from the top rope down to slam into Nebuchadnezzar, just taunting him brutally with this first verse. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. That right there is pretty insulting, because if you remember... Like, Daniel just had a conversation about statues and visions not that long ago. I can just imagine Daniel in council and working with Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar calls Daniel in and says, Hey, Daniel, I want to show you my really cool plans. I have this cool idea. Come look at it. And he shows him the plan for this big old statue. And Daniel just stares at him like, Are you a moron? Like, how stupid can you possibly be? And just the... the sheer gall and stupidity of Nebuchadnezzar to do this, you're thinking, this is really, really bad idea. If you don't, uh, if you wouldn't mind, turn back a page, just a page over, or your Bible might already be there depending on the lining up of it. But in Daniel 2, we're going to revisit the interpretation of the dream and why this might be so dumb um, to set up this statue. Besides, we were already maybe going to first, uh, or for the giving of the Ten Commandments and things like that in mind. But let's look back through um, Daniel 2, in verse, starting in verse 31, and we're going to look at the vision and interpretation briefly, and then we're going to see kind of Nebuchadnezzar's response to all of this. So Daniel 2, 31 says, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and ex of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. So there's a mighty image standing before him. Um, the head of this image was a fine gold. Then we'll jump down uh, to verse 36. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. 
You, O king, the king of kings, to whom God, the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and, to whose hand, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. And, um, and then if we go even further down in verses 44 and 45, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break into pieces all these kingdoms and, it, and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. So the scene I'm envisioning is Daniel's going, okay, Nebuchadnezzar, this vision that you've been terrified of has a statue with a gold head, and you're the head of gold. And there's going to be a, a stone, not cut with hands, that's going to come and shatter to pieces this golden head, this golden statue. And, um, and it's going to be your destruction and undoing. And by the way, the interpretation of this is certain. It's sure this is going to happen. What are you going to do? What's your next move? And Nebuchadnezzar says, hear me out. Let's build a gold statue. That's, that's what we should do, build a gold statue. But don't worry, it's going to be handmade. It's just the stupidity of this seems blatant. Like you just were terrified of this to the point. And even we, what we don't know is how much time's gone on. It's probably been a, a year. It could have been years. It could be months. We don't know. But the reality is that he was kept awake by a vision over this. And yet here he is setting up a statue. And we already visited last time, the last time I preached, that, that confession or that um, proclamation of the greatness of God, of Daniel's God, at the, after his um, dream is inter interpreted, is a, it's a, it's a false, it's, it's not true conversion. It is something that he said, but clearly his behavior is showing the quality of his heart. And if you're thinking, I'm making too much fun of Nebuchadnezzar here, is it really, is Daniel really being that harsh by saying... In, in 3.1, that he set up this statue, this 90-foot statue. Well, I'd encourage you to look through the scripture and see the repetitiveness that Daniel seems to be making when pointing out that Nebuchadnezzar set up the statue. So look first, and we're going to look first at uh, verse 2. Uh, let's see here. In Daniel 3, verse 2, Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all of the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Okay, so we have a, um, uh, we have it set up. In fact, I think I skipped one in verse one. It talks about it. He set it up on the plain of Dura. So then we have him bringing everybody in to show what he set up. And then in verse 3, we have, again, the listing of all these officials. And if you look at the last sentence, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then you look, go down, skip a verse, go down to 5. We go through a list of instruments. And you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then we look again um, down at verse 7. <coughs> Excuse me. Therefore, as soon as all the, all the instruments go through, all, 
all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down, and they worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then we go down further, verse 12. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, these men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And then lastly, in verse 14, we have Nebuchadnezzar answered them and said to them, Is it true? He says it to Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. Or do you not serve this god, this golden image that I have set up? Seven times in 14 verses, Daniel points out that Nebuchadnezzar set up a statue. It, it kind of seems and feels to me like Nebuchadnezzar, as he's writing this, is trying to make very clear, I have nothing to do with this. I have nothing to do with this. This is all Nebuchadnezzar's doing. But really, the focus here is on the setting up. He said it so many times. It's this idea of handmade human creation, that Nebuchadnezzar is trying to make himself God by making a god with his hands. It is a handmade thing, which is in direct contrast to the eventual Messiah, who is one, who is a stone cut from a mountain with no human hands. And we see this progress further, Nebuchadnezzar acting as, a, as trying to make himself Yahweh and trying to make himself as God. In the way in which this language is laid out, the things he's choosing to do and the things that are said, he is straight up trying to steal from Yahweh's playbook. He's trying to steal. He's trying to go one for one and be a, 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 an exact copy. Um, look with me. Uh, we're going to look first at uh, verses 2 and 3 in Daniel, and then we're going to jump, um, or um, we, we're going to jump back to our um, hymn of proclamation, or excuse me, our um, psalm that we opened up with, our passage, our call to worship. We're going to look back at that and see how it compares to what Nebuchadnezzar is attempting to do. So in verses 2 and 3, Nebuchadnezzar is a stat trying to establish himself as king of kings. He's trying to establish himself as king of all nations and all peoples. In verse 2 it says, Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dream. So they came, uh, excuse me, I'm looking in the wrong chapter of Daniel. I am sure they were there as well. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then we have this repetition again. The, then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, all, and all of the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. <coughs> Excuse me. This, this repetition of all of these different authorities and position, people in power is basically saying the whole who's who are here. Everybody that is in any type of authority are here. And they all are about to bow down to what I created. And if we go to Psalm 47... Let's hear what's said of the true Yahweh, not the counterfeit. Psalm 47. And we're going to look at the last two verses. <clears throat> verses 8 and 9. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather 
as the people of the God of Abraham, for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. It is God who gathers the peoples and nations together to bow before him. We see Nebuchadnezzar, so we're going to flip back to Daniel 3. We see Nebuchadnezzar attempt this again. He's trying to counterfeit Yahweh, speak as Yahweh does, and, and put, exalt himself to a position of God. We see in Daniel 3 verse 4 that... <coughs> excuse me. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You're commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages. Okay? That, and then at the end of verse 5, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. So, peoples, nations, and languages. That I imagine you're immediately going to every tribe and nation, every tongue will confess. Right? That's exactly what we think of. If we just go a couple chapters later in Daniel 7, the very vision of the victory of Jesus, the very, the very vision says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar is doing, the, his command is the exact attempt at this imagery, again, of doing the exact same thing that Yahweh does, or Yahweh says he will do. Nebuchadnezzar is trying to make himself like God. And then if we look uh, further at the, at the listing of instruments in um, verses 4 and 5 of Daniel 3, uh, we have, And the herald proclaimed aloud all the peoples, nations, languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then look, look again at verse 10. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears, excuse me, that every man who hears, um, uh, every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And then again in verse 15, now, this Nebuchadnezzar talking to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, he says, Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I've made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Turn with me to Psalm 150, the last psalm. See if this sounds pretty similar. Psalm 150. Praise Yahweh. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the trumpet sound. Praise him with the lute and harp. Praise him with the tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud crashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise Yahweh, praise Yahweh. The Nebuchadnezzar is just over and over saying, I am Yahweh. 
he's just doing it. Oh, he's doing it consistently enough that it is not a coincidental, this isn't just one link in the language. It is too consistent. And we have it again in his very form of, dis, of punishment. The way he's going to punish disobedience is with the fiery furnace. Look, look at Daniel 3, 6 with me. Uh, Daniel 3, verse 6. <clears throat> and whoever does not fall down and worship immediately shall be cast in the fiery furnace. And then we have again in verse 11. And whoever does not shall fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning furnace. Then again in verse 15, uh, we'll look at the second half. Um, but if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? Now hear the words of Ezekiel 22, 22. As silver is melted in a furnace, so shall you be melted in the midst of it. And you shall know that I am Yahweh. I have poured out my wrath upon you. The very thing that Nebuchadnezzar is over and over, everything, who I want to be at my party, what types of people, the diversity of them, how I want to do it with the music and instruments, the type of punishment if you disobey, all of it is to say, I am Yahweh. That is what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. And even by him setting up this statue to be worshipped, this God, what is he really doing when we say over and over that he set it up? He wants you to worship what he made. He wants to be worshipped for what he made. It is not that he's seeking the glory of the statue. The worshipping of the thing he did is the worship of him. And his behavior over and over is establishing himself as a counterfeit Yahweh. We're now going to look at Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah in this. So all of this you might listen to and go, okay, Boom. See how easy it is for the three of them to not obey Nebuchadnezzar? In fact, not only should they not listen to him and do this, why are they even serving in his regime? Why are you working for a place that does evil and wickedness? You're a part of it, right? You're a piece in the machine. You're bringing wealth and prosperity. And wealth and prosperity in Babylon probably funds extravagant statue making, right? Like there is a part that these three might have if they're serving in Babylon it's easy to fight them. Well, we're going to turn to Jeremiah 27, and we're going to see what God is telling the exiles in Babylon through the prophet Jeremiah. So this is at the same time. These are, these are the um, uh, exiles in Babylon. In uh, 27, we're going to look at a couple chunks of chapter 27. This is talking to, um, it is, this is at this point a prophecy of what is going to come. It's talking about how God will turn over the nations into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. Here, what, um, uh, here I'm going to first tee you up by giving you a little uh, taste at the beginning of the giving of the Ten Commandments, and then thinking of what God, where God draws the line, we're going to then hear what God has to say about Nebuchadnezzar in Jeremiah 27. So the giving of the Ten Commandments starts off with, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. 
So this seems like it's written straight up about Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar has done the very thing to violate this commandment. And yet, let's look at Jeremiah 27.6. And again, God is telling Jeremiah what to tell these surrounding nations that he will do using Nebuchadnezzar. 20, Jeremiah 27, verse 6. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I have given him all the nations, uh, excuse me, I have given him also the beast of the fields to serve him. Yahweh is telling Jeremiah, Nebuchadnezzar's my servant. He's my servant. If we back it up even and, and read through that again now with the context of this, you start to see maybe where some of the predicament lies for Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. It's not in Nebuchadnezzar and should I, is it, should I die or God? That is not a, even a question. The question is, how do I obey God in Nebuchadnezzar's court and yet the very person I'm supposed to obey is conducting evil? And look at what it says again in Jeremiah 27, but this time I'm going to back it up from five and go through all the way through seven. It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth, and I give it to whomever it seems right to me. Now, I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I have given him also the beasts of the fields to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. God clearly has a purpose for Nebuchadnezzar. But God starts off saying, Nebuchadnezzar, my servant, he starts off by flexing and saying, this is my world that I created and I give it to whoever I want. And I want to give it to Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. Okay, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, they're hearing a letter that's the words of Jeremiah being read out that are ultimately the words of Yahweh. Okay, I'm to obey this man. And then if we go down further in verse 8 through 13, we start to see the, the threat if they don't put their neck under the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar. If they don't submit to his authority and his, um, uh, to work under Nebuchadnezzar. In verse 8 uh, through 13, But if any nation or kingdom will not serve this Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, I will punish that nation with the sword, with famine, and with pestilence, declares Yahweh, until I have consumed it by my hand. So do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, and your fortune tellers or sorcerers who are saying to you, You shall not serve the king of Babylon, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you with the result that you will be removed far from your land, and I will drive you out and you will perish. <clears throat> Excuse me. But any nation that will bring its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, I will leave on its own land to work it and dwell there, declares Yahweh. To Zedekiah, king of Judah, I spoke in like manner. Bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him and his people and live. Why will you and your people die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence? As Yahweh has spoken concerning any nation that will not serve the king of Babylon. God is making it very clear there will be multi-generational destruction for your family and your nation if you do not serve 
the king of Babylon, if you do not serve Nebuchadnezzar. So this perceived tension of, you know, that it's what I keep referencing because they've made so many of them, but it, I keep referencing the veggie tales. Like this is, this tension is what's put into veggie tales, right? It's, ooh, you gotta, when the time comes, you gotta choose God and not to bow down and worship. And there's an element to this. We've seen this actually, like this, this might not be so much our experience on a day-to-day -to, -day to this extreme, but we've seen this with the martyrs. There is a point in time where you just say, no, I will not worship Caesar. I will die. But there's more here for us than just that. The real tension for these young men is in that God has told them to be obedient, peaceful servants, and you have someone who is violating the Ten Commandments someone who's commanding them to violate the Ten Commandments. So the tension is between obeying God and obeying God, or at least the perceived tension, I would say, because I don't think there is a true tension there. The, the idea of having a where's the line sermon out of this, right? Like that idea of where do you draw the line? When do you decide not to, to serve? I would say I think that is maybe well-intentioned but misplaced. There is no decision for us on where to draw the line. We have zero say on where the line is drawn. It is God who draws the lines. God says, these are the lines you shall not cross. These are the lines you will obey. They know they are to love only Yahweh with their, with their heart, soul, and might. They know this. It is the Shema. They've been taught it from, from childhood. It's been frontlets on their eyes. It's been written on doorposts. They know that their heart is only for God. And so they are to work and serve in this time, and yet they need to, when it comes to themselves conducting sin and idolatry, they cannot do it. There is only one true God and only one true judge. And yet God, in his wisdom, has placed them in a specific time and situation. And we'll even see that perhaps contrary to the way maybe media, Facebook, news, whatever it is today, where we want to rally our fist and fight what we think is the good fight as loud and demonstrably, demonstrably as possible, what we need to remember in this Babylon, in the heart of pagan culture, how have these men approached working every day? We've seen it in the first two chapters. They've done it peaceably. First, we had them humbly approach Ashpenaz, who was the chief steward, the chief of the eunuchs. And they humbly approach him asking not to eat of the king's table, instead to eat vegetables, not, and not drink the king's wine to avoid defilement. Then after that, when the answer was no, they go back this time to the steward who was actually appointed directly over them by Ashpenaz, and they approach him and ask, hey, may we please do vegetables instead of this? We do not want to defile ourselves. They end up having the test. God blesses them with still having um, health and strength despite eating vegetables and not the fat and, and, and um, of the king's table. And so then, and then scripture talks about how they approached Arioch. They approached the captains of the king guard with prudence and discretion. So it says in Daniel 2, uh, I think 18, it, it talks about prudence and discretion is how he goes to them. And he asked, Daniel humbly asked, what's going on here? What's the situation? And then after that, once they realize, ooh, we're all going to die because these, these yahoos cannot answer the vision, well, now what are we to do? 
they go in and go through a form, the formal process of making a petition to come before the king. No part of this is starting a rebellion in the streets. No part of this is publicly building animosity against the government. No part of this is, is going out and gossiping and fighting and trying to in any way create insurrection. Instead, they're going about it peaceably. And yet, this test is different. This attempt from Nebuchadnezzar is different. Let's look at verses 16 through 18 and see the response in this situation. I still think there is a peacefulness, there is an understanding and a confidence here, but there is clearly a difference in behavior here than, um, or, a, or an even stronger stance here. In 16 through 18, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They have the confidence that the pressure and the, the, the challenge set before them in their daily life is not from Nebuchadnezzar. He is not the judge. He is trying to establish himself as judge in this moment, but he is not the judge of their hearts. They know that it is God. And with an eternal mindset and with a focus on God, they know that they are able to be silent before those that accuse them. When Jesus was brought before the high priest, what was said of his response when he was accused? He gave them no answer. He remained silent. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah similarly know they have an answer. There is no need to try to defend themselves. There is no point. There is one judge to, be, to answer to, and this earthly person whom God has given in this moment in time and situation is not the person that they need to answer to. And like lambs before the slaughter, they are prepared knowing that their faith is in the lamb who will be slaughtered. They are a model of what Christ would do in the far greater way, which is to stand before someone who is accusing them, to experience attempted judgment or experience judgment and ultimately rise from that for the salvation of these very men. They will be saved by the actions of the future lamb who is standing before the, the accusers. Now, I think you find yourself today in a far more similar situation to these three young men than you might think you do. You live in a country where the past 250 years has seen the wealthiest nation that the world has ever seen. The United States spends more money on military than the next nine countries combined. We're the country that the world looks to when they need support and help and protection. If any country is a Babylon in its modern time or in the past couple centuries, it is this one. This country is a modern-day Babylon. We are the ones who should be puffed up and proud to be Americans because we are the greatest country. This is the greatest country. And yet you are faced with similar challenges that these people do, which is a puffed-up country that is focused on the idolatry of self, our own image, how we view ourselves, what is our identity? Who do I choose to be? What is my self-worth? You live in this fallen world, and yet you need to work humbly and gently. You need to stand for truth. You need to 
operate and live in a fallen world that has every reason in the world from an earthly standard to be prideful and say, I am God. And the world is doing this. We are doing this throughout our country. We are doing this from whether it's government, our teachers, our people, just people in general. What I believe and feel is right. I am the judge. I get to establish law. I get to choose. But that's not that's not what God had designed. And we can rightfully say this is sin, and we can point out that it's sin. And yet, what is the content of your heart and your mind when it approaches things in which you see a world covered in sin and with zero desire to obey God? Think of a, starting with our government. Let's hear the words of Romans 13, 1 through 3, uh, excuse me, 1 through 4. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authorities resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear that one who is in authority, uh, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval for he is God's servant for your good. There's no authority except from God. So how do you think and talk with others about the president, about senators, about police officers, about your husband, your boss? Whatever authority God has placed, as wicked and sinful as that person might be, how do you treat that person? How do you conduct yourself in a fallen world? This is the real tension for us. It is not, there is a tension of do we need to lay our life on the line for Christ? Absolutely, if it comes to that, right? To die, to die is gain, but to live, or to live is Christ, but to die is gain. That, that can be the situation here, but that is not the struggle that this church is dealing with every day. This church goes out and works. Or if, even if we don't work, we're experiencing everyday life with people who are fallen. We spend our time watching news that tells us and gossips about the downfall of the world and how terrible the country is and how terrible this politician is or that politician is. And are they helping us to submit to our authorities? It is God who draws the line and not us. It is God who draws the line. We do not get to say, this is when I stop obeying and listening to authorities because I dislike it. They are sinful people. Your pastors and elders are sinful people too. We are sinners. You do not get to decide when you draw, where the line is drawn on when to obey them. God has drawn those lines, and you are to worship no other God except for him. Outside of that, we are to obey. We are not to bring sin upon ourselves, but we are to submit ourselves to authority. I'm going to read Jeremiah 27, 4 and 5 one more time for you, for us all. Give them this charge for their masters. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel. This is what you shall say to your masters. It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth. And with the men and animals that are on the earth, I give it to whom, whomever it seems right to me. Hallelujah. It's not our votes that are deciding presidents. It's God. It's not, it's not us picking out the person we are most attracted to and might be actually willing to talk to us back and eventually you get married. 
It's God deciding who your husband's going to be and is going to be the authority over you. It is not our decision. These are God's appointments. In closing, let's turn to, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter two. We're going to look at verses, <clears throat> excuse me, verses eighteen through twenty-five. First <laughs> Peter two eighteen through twenty-five. Well, we're going to uh, excuse me thirteen, starting in verse thirteen. I apologize. We're going to go through quite a bit of it here, but starting in thirteen through seventeen. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you shall be put to silence in the ignorance of foolish people. You should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Is Fox News helping you honor the emperor? If you've watched it for an hour, do you feel like you are in a better position to honor the emperor? This goes for any news station, but I have a feeling there's one that for our church is probably more of a struggle. I know for me, the struggle, I have three people I could name at work, and if I'm getting lunch with them, I'm not honoring my boss. To spend time with them is so quick to get into the problems of the boss God has placed over me and talk about those at work who are not the people and not the leader and not what I think I could be in their position. The arrogance and foolishness of me to think that I could be like God and choose who is to be in authority. We need to conduct ourselves, not just in what we say and do, but the engagements we have with others needs to put us in a position to be better equipped to honor the emperor, to honor those who have been put in authority over us, and ultimately to honor everyone, as it says here. Look, we're going to continue down in 1 Peter 2, looking through 18 through 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You will not experience in this life a Nebuchadnezzar 
to the extent and transparency and obviousness of a Nebuchadnezzar, where you are straight up shoved in front of life and death for your faith. You will not have someone who is, I, I would be shocked to find out if one of you have someone who builds a statue and says, worship it. Now, there are plenty of, plenty of sermons to go on the idolization of things other than statues, but the clear, blatant, you shall worship it, those words being explicitly said, you shall bow down, we're not going to experience that. And yet, these men have conducted themselves honorably. They submitted themselves even to the unjust until the time came where there is a line that we do not cross, a line determined by God. So I implore all of us that as we leave today, that we do our best to honor everyone, that we honor the emperor, that we honor our loved ones and our spouses, and yet we know that there is one who will judge. He is the only true just judge. And if there is anything that prevents us from worshiping him, or if there is anything that is taking our worship onto it, it is to be avoided at all costs. It is to be avoided at all costs because there is one true God, one true judge just, who at one point will come back and return and ask us for an account for our actions. Let's pray. Yahweh, there was a man who attempted to set himself up as Yahweh. Lord, and yet we see ourselves doing this. We try to take the authority for ourselves that Adam and Eve tried to take for themselves to make decisions on what is good and what is right. Lord, we, we go through a struggle of life of idolatry, a struggle of life of puffing ourselves up as if we are God. But there is one true God. There is one in whom the fiery furnaces of this earth are nothing before you. You have the power to save us, but if you choose not to, we still will not bow down to any other thing. And yet, Lord, we know that perhaps a greater struggle in our day-to-day -day walk is how do we walk? How do we experience life in exile on this earth, walking among those who are blatantly against you, those who outright defy you or say hateful, heinous speech against you. And yet we are to work and honor them. Not for what they say, but to honor those people because they are people made in your image as well, Lord. I pray that you will help us to walk this line, that you will help us to better walk as Christ walked in a fallen world that was out to persecute him, Lord. And yet I also hope and pray that you will help us to be able to die before turning ourselves over to the adversary, whether he tempts us in the desert as he tempted Christ or when accused before a high priest or tribunal, Lord. May we be prepared to serve and yet not serve any other God before you. May you be glorified in our behavior and conduct. In your son's name we pray. Amen.